Okay, today I'm in Ascot, and I've just been told actually seven furlongs from the winning post exactly. at, at, at Ascot with David Smalley. Thanks very much, David, for agreeing to talk to us no, today. Good morning, um, SB reporter, um, journalist in the for a long time in the Race Form Handicap book, and also academic in your other life. Yep. Um, so you've written a book, uh, A Head Full of Jolly Robins, uh, which we'll talk about later. Right. Most of the stories I'm going to ask you about are in there. Um, I was very interested that you, there's a guy called Liam Kavanagh, I presume that's pronounced yeah, correctly. That's Bill Kavanagh, yes. That, that was a big part of your early life. Yeah. And he founded the London School of Turf Accountancy. Now, I'm surprised that even existed. And well, you used to teach people to settle bets. That's so what tell it, us yeah, a bit about that. That's, well, when betting became legal and betting shops sprouted out all over the place, they needed people to run the settle and um, run the shops, take the bets. And this chap was um, an Irish accountant, quite a bit of a punter, but he latched on to the idea of um, setting up the, um, the, these jobs on a sound basis. And he ran a course for settlers, he ran a course for board men, counter clerks, and um, it, it really took off. And so much so that William Hill sort of joined the uh, kind of operation at one stage, and th they used to send quite a lot of their employees to, to these courses. And I just happened to meet him with them um, the chap that was one of the bags, the Afternoon Greyhound Society uh, organizers, Tom Allsop, and um, we got chatting and he said he was looking for staff and Tom said, well, I think I've got somebody who could help you. So that's how I got introduced to Bill Kavanagh and we, I used to report to him maybe a couple of evenings a week um, in, the, in Tottenham Court Road, the, uh, there was a corals betting shop, and they used to say up the Freudian stairs and through the back rooms, and there we had a couple of classrooms, which we'd have about a dozen, 15 people in there, um, and uh, I'd sort of give them hints on settling so that they could work through the bets quickly and use arithmetic to um, settle the bets and uh, I, we seemed to get on very well together. We had a lot of uh, were kindred spirits, you'd say, um, and uh, I got into one or two other little... <laughs> I'm going to ask about them in a minute. <laughs> yes. So you basically, but you, you were teaching people to settle before you'd actually seen proper active service on a race course or anything. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. I've been to the race courses, but I'm not, uh, and I'd, I'd been betting doing you know, betting from time to time and um, there were I was Brunel was at Acton at the time and there were a couple of betting shops by Acton Market which were pretty busy so I'd pop into there uh, Friday afternoons I was uh, I used to teach on Thursday nights and the Friday afternoon off and then you taught what did you teach you? well I used to teach mathematics yeah, to so engineers yeah so it was a little bit beyond simple arithmetic for settlers. Right, now you said that you got in some scrapes with Ian Kavanagh, and well, this, this story in your book about bribing train uh, porters or stations oh, to stop the train so you could get greyhounds on. Now you've got to you tell people about that. I never had a day like it in my life. He had this idea of setting up a... a um, a series of trials for greyhounds that people wanted to sell or bring over from Ireland. He joined up with, he was Irish, he joined up with a, two or three guys from Ireland to um, form the uh, a company that was selling greyhounds, trialling them and selling them around the UK basically starting at Hackney Wick, where 
he'd get he'd have about 40 50 greyhounds from Ireland or from around the south of England if people wanted to sell them and what he'd do was he'd trial them in the morning he'd put them in in the boxes in the in the traps and he'd trial them just to make sure that they followed the they followed the hair you see that they were quite genuine and then after a bit of lunch he they'd all come up for auction well of course if you watch the trials some were quite a bit better than others and uh, would bring a bit more money than others and uh, so he 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 said um oh well, in my summer holidays uh, he, he got me involved in the change of ownership of these greyhounds doing all the um the the work for the cha you know changing the ownerships taking the money and and making everything the handover was was complete and um, so i'll be at uh, Hackney Wick sitting in a little box and the greyhounds would be brought round and people would bid and they get they get a ticket if they bought the greyhounds they would come to me and they give me their details and I'd fill out the the necessary forms for them to take the greyhounds home well this became quite popular and there was one one big um sessions for, for I think it was a July afternoon and I certainly wasn't I, I was on holiday and um, we started off at Hackney Wick in the morning and sold oh I should say about 70 or 80 greyhounds but there were about 100 120 possible and so the next day they had a sale organised at Sheffield, at Oller, I think they call it Ollerton or Owlerton, Ollerton. And uh, the idea was that the greyhounds that weren't sold at Hackney and quite a few that were from around England would be turn up at Ollerton on the day after trial and we go through the same process again. Well, the idea was to meet at King's Cross seven o'clock in the morning or even 6.30 and so I got up early I was going to go up with the with the team and do the same job um, so I get to King's Cross at 6.30 and he booked a brake van to put these greyhounds in to carry them the ones unsold from Hackney up to um, Sheffield these have been housed somewhere at a kennels near Windsor the night before and we had two big furniture vans that brought them down supposedly were to bring them down to uh, to King's Cross well we get to King's Cross and there are no furniture vans and no no greyhounds and he's going spare because he's my business is ruined i've got to get these where where are, i thought he was going to kill the drivers of these vans when they got he got them up against the wall and anyway there were 30 40 greyhounds there but we'd missed the brake van train and we'd missed the seven o'clock i think it was from king's cross to to sheffield and anyway i someone although it might have been me that discovered that there was a train from st pancras to sheffield um, at nine o'clock and that uh, he thinks if we can get them on this train <coughs> to sheffield the sale will be a bit late but there are guys at sheffield who can sort of help them pass the time and um well he, he said come on follow me david and he marched round to St Pancras station and into the station master's office <coughs> said I, I need a, a brake van I, I need a van to take 30 greyhounds to Sheffield on the nine o'clock train he said it's my business if, if I can't have it I'll lose my oh and he was absolutely wild about it 
and the, the station master looked at him and said, I'm sorry, sir, we have to go through Derby before we can organise things like that. Well, suddenly three £10 notes appeared out of Liam's pocket, waved them in front of the <laughs> station master, who immediately shot up out of his seat, picked up a bowler hat from the, from the rack and marched and said, right, follow me. <laughs> so we went around to the end of the station. I, I, I was way behind and he was running like crazy. And um, anyway, about half an hour later, the shunter came up with a, a brake van and put these, this brake van on the front of the Sheffield train. And uh, away we came with the greyhounds from King's Cross to St Pancras, which of course are next door to each other. And there were three or four of our team, and but I was carrying leads for three greyhounds, which I'd never done in my life before. Anyway, we got these greyhounds in the um, in the in, in this brake van and he, he got bowls of water and there was straw in there and everything and there was a, suddenly there was a, a first class coach reserved for the greyhound party and uh, away goes the nine o'clock train with the party <laughs> and 30 greyhounds and uh, Immediately, the the the, 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 um, the the bar opened, the breakfast bar, there was coffee for us. Anyway, we're we're sorting out which greyhounds we've got there, and then suddenly he realises he doesn't have he, he didn't have a list, so we had to make a, try and form a list from what had gone the day before. Well, before we were approaching Derby, he realised he really didn't know which greyhound was which and somehow we had to label them, find something to put on their collars. So we get to Derby and the train pulls in and Liam dashes off to the WH Smiths to, to get some of these indelible pens and things and um, so that we can label these <laughs> greyhounds. Well, the train was ready for off and the, guy was, the, the guard was about to wave his flag and blow his whistle and, we, and, and Liam hadn't appeared. Um, he was still getting these, this stuff from WH Smiths. So knowing what he'd done at, um, at St Pancras, I pulled a tenner out of my pocket and offered it to the guard. I said, wait for our mate, wait for our mate. And he did. <laughs> Liam comes running. Anyway, so it cost him a tenner at Derby. The tenner would have been about a monkey in those days, wouldn't it? Well, it was, it was well, not quite, but it was, it was enough. <laughs> what what, it was, what sort of time was this? This would be in uh, nineteen late nineteen sixties. Yeah. yeah, and you used to you used to stick all at the dogs as well. He did. You, 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 well, I did. I, I occasionally went with him. Um, yeah, we. We um, he he had a group of dogs which he called um, by their his business sort of like a business tag wonder settler baby settler lightning settler and um, they they used to run around the London tracks and occasionally he he'd be he'd be wanting people to put money on because he was well known there. Well, he rang me once and I was lecturing at Brunel. In, in the morning and in the afternoon. He said, get, get yourself down to the office by 5.30. We've got a certainty at Clapton Dogs tonight and I need somebody to put the money on, you see. So about five of us appeared at, um, at, Coral, at the Coral's betting shop at Tottenham Court Road. And one of them was Gus Dalrymple from the Sporting Life, who used to be one of the top racing writers. He used to write a an a very interesting column for the racing, for the sporting life. And five of us piled into a taxi, but it had started to rain and I didn't have a raincoat. And be just before when we were assembling, I had 15 pounds in my pocket that I was going to put on the dog for myself, thinking it was a good, a good thing. And the idea was he gave us all 30 pounds and he hid at the back of the crowd. And when he waved his hat, we all went into a different bookmaker and put this 30 quid on, you see. 
Well, it was raining and I decided I'd better buy a raincoat because I didn't have one anyway. So I, I bought the raincoat. We went up to the track, got in, smuggled in there and I could hear one or two sidelines saying, there's something going to happen, something going to happen. And then Wonder Settler appeared up in this race and the next thing Liam waved his hat it was about seven to two, I think, on the on the boards, and five of us went in with thirty quid each, and it's oh 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 oh, and waving and of arms and rubbing off of prices and everything, and the next thing, when the price goes up again, it's still seven to two, so you sort of hmm, think that there's something wrong here. Well, the damn dog crawled out of the boxes and finished fifth or sixth. And he went mad, did Bill Kavanagh. He got the trainer and I thought he was going to strangle him. He said, I've been turned over, we've been turned over. Well, I, <laughs> it was just an experience for me. I also was used to look at that raincoat and think, could have been a torn up bookies ticket, that. <laughs> All right, David, All right. part one there. Right. Liam seemed like quite a nice fella, but oh, he's he was a great guy. The he's, Dino, uh, how do you pronounce his surname? Well, Dino Cellini. Cellini. Yeah, R Liam used to he, he used to occasionally take me to the Victoria Sporting Club in Edgware Road, where he, he he liked to play the tables, which didn't really interest me, but the food there was good. Um, and he used to take me to the. Um, to a, a, a gambling club in, oh, what's it called? It was um, Bar uh, Nightingale's, uh, in Nightingale's Square. Um, I can't remember the name of the club, it'll come to me. But when we got there, this was a class one gaming club where a lot of American people, it was run by some Americans over the British host or British manager and it was a top class club and he used to take me in there and he introduced me to the gaming manager Dino Cellini. Now in that club we used to have quite a lot of uh, people like um, the uh, Egyptian film star that used to play the cards and play bridge. Omar, Omar Sharif. Omar Sharif and quite a few film stars came down, Nancy Sinatra and Cicely Courtnage and quite a few people that were... And the doorman was um, a guy called George Raft, who was a big B-movie star from America who used to play the gangster roles, and, but he was a dancer as well. He was a smooth guy. And uh, I used to go into there and walk around with Liam and watch him play, and then we'd have a meal. And he introduced me to Dino Cellini. Well, we were sitting having a meal, and Dino joined us. And it was quite—it was quite obvious he—he he didn't understand that he knew the mathematics of the business by sense, by just by probably by repeatedly. Having you having sort of done played the games and he, I got down and sat down with him and taught him some very basic, simple probability and how his games worked. You see, and then we could work. He, he knew that they always made a profit, but he, he he couldn't work out quite how. Anyway, I got very friendly with with the guy and. Uh, he, he said, um, if I can give, instead of giving one and a half, six to four for a blackjack, if I can give two to one and beat all my competitors, will I make money? So that was a little task he sort of set me, which I said I'll try and try it out on the computer we had at Brunel. And I had a... I, Funnily enough, one of the research students was actually dealing cards at night for his to pay his way. <laughs> Not at this, this club, but um, 
anyway, I, I uh, arranged to meet up with Dino after Easter at, um, uh, at the club and we'd talk about this, what the results of playing 40,000 games of blackjack and paying two for one instead of one and a half to one. And it, it, it didn't come out with a profit, so it had all been set up by people who knew, obviously. And, but I arranged to meet him on Easter Tuesday at the club, and it was over Easter, that whatever it, it does hits the fan, and George Raft is refused entry back into the country from America, and uh, Dino Cellini disappears from from the scene to the Carlton Towers, and the American side of things suddenly evaporates, and the English guy said, oh, I'm, "I'm going to have to go to Vegas to, with this lot if I want to if I want to keep my job." But the police, the CID, had um, had noted that there were some meetings being held at this club, the Colony Club it was called, and um, the, uh, the participants there all seemed to have mafia uh, connections. And uh, Dino Cellini had mentioned to me that if I could solve this problem, he'd send me on a holiday to the Bahamas, to their hotels, which I found out were run by Jacob Moyolansky, the heads of the mafia, in, 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 well, in America, but from Bahamas. But uh, so all the whole thing collapsed, and uh, the next thing I heard about Dino Cellini was he was running a, um, a, a similar joint somewhere down in Tasmania. <laughs> no, but he wasn't the only American connection, was he? Because you were a tipster to none other than Bob Hope. Oh yes, well, yeah, it, that that um, didn't that was not connected with uh, the Colony Club at all. That was a pal of mine from university, Barry Gill, set up his own. He, he, he was a, he was a correspondent for the, for the Daily Herald, motoring correspondent, and he um, he uh, went to work for the uh, the Formula One circuit, the Marlborough that they're sponsoring Formula One races and cars and he went to work for them and set up his own little company after that and he he was promoting um, the Littlewoods Milk Cup for football and uh, um, a lot of publicity for the motor racing circuit particularly and um, they had a he was doing things for Avis the car hire group and uh, he decided that they'd have a day at Sandown Park when all Avis clients, or not all, but the main ones in Britain would be invited to Sandown Park for, for a day's racing. We'd they'd fly into Heathrow, we'd meet up for coffee and biscuits at Heathrow and then we'd, there, was, there would be about 120 cars and all the different range that Avis had was in the were in the car park with instructions of how to get to Sandown Park and th these people in pairs had to go and drive these cars to Sandown Park where I was waiting for them to give them the the, the talk about the racing and they'd have lunch well just before lunch there was a sort of bit of a gasp, and Barry had said something special will happen. Well, in walked Barry with Bob Hope and and his wife, and who happened to be in in England for two weeks on his way back from entertaining the troops in um, uh, where out in the Far East in. Where Vietnam were they fighting? Vietnam or Korea? Yeah, Vietnam. Vietnam. I think I think it was Vietnam. And um, and he had a 
one of these busty blondes with him as well. His wife came as well. So, um, and we had we had people like Alan Minter, the middleweight champion, and Sterling Moss, and uh, one or two other C-list film stars and things. And so, where we there we were for lunch, and I was having to give the the the, the talk of the racing. It was a jumps racing, and I'd picked that day for Barry because I knew the Queen Mother would be there because it was her Royal Artillery Day at Sandown Park, and uh, I, I thought it would be, well, it was. We thought it would be a good idea if Bob Hope met the Queen Mother. Well, it happened. So happened that she, he was her favourite comedian, and his lifetime ambition had been to meet the Queen's mother. So the queen, yeah, the queen, queen mother. And it was like high noon as there were two groups of people across the paddock at Sandown Park, queen mother with her itinerary, the chairman of Avis and Bob Hope and Barry and his team. And uh, well, it, she invited his wife and her, um, himself up for her, to their box for afternoon tea. And I'd given him some tips, and he'd given me about three or four hundred quid. To, and so I put 200 on the first race, where I think Johnny Franken was riding, and I think I was seven to two, or a hundred to three, something like that. And it won. And then there was 10 up, the, uh, the uh, Fulk Walwins, I think it won the Gold Cup eventually, but that won one of the big races. and. I backed another horse at five to two, which hampered the second horse at the last hurdle, and I knew it would get disqualified. So I rushed off, and I'd got about 400 quid from various places on this horse with, on the rails, mainly with Victor Chandler and Lab Brooks. And um, I hedged, I got six to four, the, the, the horse had finished second, so I made it so that I, we either won and I lost a couple of hundred hedging, or we won about 50 quid, but we didn't lose on the main bet. And so it got thrown out, and, um, and we went back, we gathered back at the dining, the dining room, and I had to explain to Bob Hope what I'd done all afternoon, and he was all ears, and he said, Gee, how do you make money on that? It was thrown out, it was stood down. So I had to explain how I was hedging the bet. And he just said to me, geez, he says, you're the best goddamned horse player I've ever come across. He said, I'm gonna take you across to Santa Anita and we're gonna take that place apart. So he finished up with about 600 quid and uh, Alan Minter was quite drunk and hugging me and kissing me. <laughs> And all the other, apart from Sterling Moss, who didn't be, believe a word I said, and he backed everything against me, and he was like a he was a, a real wet Monday he was on after the racing. So a Barry, who was, as I say, I'd been at university with him. I was very, we were great mates. He, um, I think I can see it loudly now, but he slipped me fifteen hundred quid in 1984 for organizing this day's work. He said, because we'll never get another publicity shot like Bob Hope meeting the Queen Mother. But pre originally, I'd, I'd also, this was with Liam Kavanagh, this was from the Colony Club, um, uh, Bing Crosby was over and had visited the club, staying at, um, oh, one of the top hotels on the, what was which one was it now? I, I don't know whether it was Claridge's, I think. Anyway, we had to pick him up and take him to Windsor Races one Monday afternoon. And uh, this was Liam's idea, born at the Colony Club. So I went into London and we jumped into a taxi and Bing came out of Claridge's and with his little port. We drove down to Waterloo, took a first class 
seat on the train to Windsor and went across on the riverboat, which Bing thought was absolutely marvellous to be, you know, a way to go to the races. And then we got there and I fancied a horse, Black Sky, Walter Nightingale, Duncan Keith. It was about seven or eight to one. So I said, we'll back this. And so he gave me a tenner each way for it. He obviously was a bit <laughs> easy, uh, not too flush with his money, but this one at seven or eight to one and they're giving him another horse. And suddenly up popped Robert Morley and Wilfred Hyde White at Windsor Races. And uh, of course, when Bing was there and th those two got together, well, we'd lost him for the afternoon. And um, I, I, I uh, just met him here and there, well, chatted to him here and there, but he was having so much fun with the these two guys that um, Liam took him back to London, but he'd had a uh, he'd had a marvelous day, he'd said, and he'd never been to the races like that. And then I found out about Robert Morley that he only used to come to Windsor and Ascot because he used to put his sons in the school uh, Papplewick, just down the opposite Ascot Racecourse. He used to send his children to Papplewick, and so that he had a he could visit his children at school and go racing at the, at the same time. Okay, David, so you became a race course regular and a professional, or at least a part-time professional well, capacity, as a starting price reporter. Yeah, well, we'd met Neil Wilkins, uh, who was one of the, well, he, at the time, he was the junior man for the Sporting Chronicle. The Cron and the Life each had to produce a neutral representative at the race meetings to return the starting prices. And uh, Neil was um, one of the, the main men. He was a young, younger lad then. And my pal played football for Luton Town, Peter Anderson, and there were one or two Chelsea players that we'd got together and had a chat and I got to know Neil quite frequently because he lived down near Slough and uh, and I'd chatted I was very interested in the system and I chatted to him and suddenly he sprung on me he said we've got nobody to, to work at um, Kempton Park on Thursday night he said you you know the job now he, can you, could you fill in for us? Because the night meetings were proliferating and they were short of staff to, um, to, work, uh, to work the meetings. So he did actually write out all the bets, 100 to 7, you know, 100 to 6 and all so the fractions. on. And the fractions. With the fractions, yes. Yeah. And uh, so I, I stepped in and seemed to go quite well and so I thought, well this is quite interesting it earns a few quid at, at a night meeting and then it came to Easter when there were about 12 13 meetings and Plumpton was I was on my own at Plumpton and uh, a jumps meeting and there was a two-horse race Albert Davison's mini tab was one of them I don't forgotten the name of the other but they were betting. You can imagine how, how the ring was in a bit of, there were five to six, 10 to 11. I'll give even, oh, 10 to 11, five to six, tips on. And by the end of the, uh, the race, it was all the prices I could see were six to five on each of the, each of two. And Neil had said, now don't you, you haven't to, you haven't to guess any you have to report what you see. So I reported this this race as six to five on each of two. And then I suddenly started getting punters hammering me, serious punters. You can't, there's no favorite. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to name a favorite, you see. I said, well, 
what was favourite? Oh, well, you could have made one of them, you know. One, well, with a lot of chuntering about it and that sort of uh, really started off one or two discussions. But um, we never came to much of a conclusion about that one. It had to be six to five on and all bets on a fa unnamed favourite were void. But I didn't know, sorry, I didn't know that uh, at the time. But so, you know, one or two bits and pieces along the way I picked up and one or two, a couple of bookmakers tried to bribe me to, um, tried to... Um, yeah, no, that was interesting because I couldn't yeah. think how it would benefit an on-course bookie to bribe an SP return. Well, I, he, it was Jack, Jackie Cohen and he was pretty drunk most of the time and... He used to say, what would it cost me to, f for you to return the price that I tell you? Well, I said, Jack, I said, he said, come on, have a whiskey. Well, I said, no. I said, you can buy me a cup of tea sometime, but I won't be playing any games. Now, there was other characters. Uh, um, well, there was... Um, Michael Tabor was... Oh, uh, Michael Tabor was, yes, he came into the picture. Uh, in the late 70s um, and uh, he, he was always arguing was he was a feisty guy he'd be on the rails but he was betting as much as laying and um, he was always arguing Dave Richardson occasionally had up and downers with him and um, there's one day at Plumpton, Plumpton again when I was working with Mick Bass and um, it was pretty quiet, and he he was shouting, shouting, arguing with somebody, and he suddenly went mad and took on a, a fourteen to one outsider, and went round the ring and smashed it off all the boards. It was just a, on a whim, I think, rather than he fancied anything. It was a novice chase, and. By the time he'd finished and the time they were off, they'd all wiped the price off the boards. So there, there wasn't a price. It, the boards. it was backed off the boards yeah. by Michael Tabor. And, uh, and so Mick Bass, um, he sort of hummed and hard. And I, I said, well, there's no price, but we've got to return something. So anyway, we hit on the idea, which I think was the first, the last price that was actually laid in the ring, uh, something like five to two. But uh, that was that that caused a bit of a problem. That you know, a lot of people had different views about that. But that's that was Michael Tabor, and then it was a very strong ring in those days, wasn't it? It was. There was a strong ring. Yeah, there were there were people like. Um, Dougie Goldstein and um, Tabor and well Leslie White for and um, Barney Curley was somebody that used to well he yeah he didn't I didn't come across him very much uh, he did till he till that um, he had a a bet with Corals I think a hundred thousand to ten thousand that he would he would um, train ten winners before Christmas. And that's when I used to come across him at Fontwell and Plumpton, where he was putting horses in cellars that were a lit, little too good for cellars. And um, he, he, he was getting taken, well, not to the cleaners, but he was, people were coming in and bidding for his horses when they didn't want him. Uh, they didn't want the horse, um, particularly at Fontwell. And, and at Plumpton, where Isaac, what was the man's name, the the, uh, the chairman of Plumpton, Kerman, uh, Mr. Kerman, uh, and Andy was involved at Fontwell. Well, at Fontwell one day, he was nearing his 10 runners, and he ran this horse, and it won by six or seven lengths. And Kerman had an, an American lady down in his box she, she used to come from america 
regularly and she had a couple of horses here and uh, he took her down to the bidding and she bid Curly up to about eight and a half thousand quid for this horse. And uh, so Curly wanted to keep it. He had another another, another plan for, for it. And um, he had to pay eight and a half thousand. Well, he went to Kerman's box and then said to Mrs. whatever she was called, Madam, you can have him for five grand. Just give me five grand and he's yours. Well, she wouldn't pay him. She wouldn't pay him. So it was quite clear she was just being a, a, a just acting on Kerman's instructions. And there was always somebody there that knew the clerk of the course at Fontwell. I think he owned a big department store at Brighton. And if if, he, if they ever got stuck with a horse, they he would he would take it you know he would but not not for much now there's a guy called ted gladson oh and then well ted yes ted gladson was a guy that came over from um from america that uh well he came to one of these gambling junkets that that uh, they used to arrange and between the Victoria Sporting Club and the Royal Lancaster Hotel and I happened to meet him at the sporting club where there were people from Chicago and others from uh, from um, F Florida Chicago and Tampa and my pal Peter Anderson was playing for Tampa Bay Rowdies at the time and he happened to be over and so we were in the club having a meal and somebody recognized Peter. We all got together and then they decided they'd, they would come to Kempton with us the next afternoon. And, and, and this guy was quite, had plenty to say and he said, oh, we'll come, I'll, I'll be there. And, Anyway, we met them off the train at Kempton, sorry, and um, first race, Franken was on, a, uh, again, Franken was on something that was a bit tasty, and I got seven to two for, they were giving me thirties and forties and fifties, so I had seven to two to about 300 quid, and this guy went off. Gladson and he knew better. He didn't want 30 or 40, he wanted a grand on it. See? So he's gone to the tote and put his thousand pounds on the tote. First race at Kempton on a Tuesday afternoon and the, the sort of three to one chance paid odds on on the tote and he, <laughs> he was the butt of all the other gamblers because he collected about 600 quid for his ground, where <laughs> there it actually got the proper odds. <laughs> so we had to calm him down, I had to calm him down, and then he somehow he, he, he latched on to me, and we were going to Newbury at the weekend, and he stayed on and came to Newbury, and we linked up like that. But he was a, a gambler and a big time. And Peter and O'Sullivan was a big gambler. Peter O'Sullivan was a successful gambler. Yeah, quite successful. But Ted Gladson, he came over for Royal Ascot. And uh, I had to be sure I was control, trying to control him. And I got him an account with Labrokes. And I asked Gladson's wife, you know, how much she said about £10,000. So I got him an account for ten grand with Labrokes and the um, first day he disappeared I lost him and at the end of the day he was quite white-faced and Derek Smith of Labrokes called me over and said your man he's you know he's 9,000 down on the first day um, he, he said if he gets to 10 he's got to pay he can't keep betting above 10 so I told him this and oh dear anyway next day there was a a major holiday horse in the first race that everybody seemed to fancy. It was about 100 to 30. He managed to get two grand on it, around about seven to two. So that put him back in the, in, in the business.
and by the end of the week, well, we'd have one very successful day. We met up with the Irish, big Irish gambler, um, O'Sullivan, Frank, Frank O'Sullivan. I'm never sure whether it was O'Sullivan or Sullivan. <laughs> um, and he, he, was, he knew the inside of Vincent O'Brien's yard. And, and we, we had a big tip for a horse that Carson was riding called April Silk. And it was in a big handicap and it was eight, nine to one. Well, I fancied another horse in the race. So I backed it and did a reverse forecast. And they were first and second. You couldn't see the horse a furlong out. It was Carson who was buried amongst the, the mass. Then all of a sudden it opened up like the Sea of Galilee and head down whirlwind finish from Carson. And this guy had won 120 grand or Sullivan on the horse. And we were having a party here that night. It was my birthdays always tended to land in Ascot week. And he came down here and he, he by the end of the week he won 190,000 quid on the week. And we were having a another Irish fellow down here was telling all the ladies he was the bishop of of um, Virginia Water, and it was just a crazy night. But um, anyway, the the sad story about that was that O'Sullivan went back to Ireland and. And he wanted to buy a stud for a quarter of a million and they were telling him, well, get the mortgage for the rest. You've got the... Of course, he went to... I'll get it at Galway next week. Of course, he blew most of it there. Gladson went over to Ireland for the Irish Derby. He met two Irish friends of mine, invited him over. And Cecil uh, from Ladbrokes, uh, the guy called Cecil. I remember Cecil, Cecil yeah. yeah. He he said, "Hard oh, to get him. I'll get him credit with Sean, Sean, uh, um, yeah, the the Irish uh, bookie. So he's gone over to Ireland on the Wednesday. And we were going over for the Irish Derby on on the Friday, four of us. Well, by the time I got there on the Friday, he pretty well he, he wasn't in good shape. And on by the Saturday, the Irish Derby." He, he, he'd gone 20 grand down to Sean, um, Sean Graham Sean Graham and uh, they were telling him what a, what, a, what a man Sean could be he sent people to America to collect the money and, and O'Sullivan suggested tell him you didn't know about the currency and you were betting in dollars and uh, I'm thinking well if he pays I said 5,000 if he pays ten thousand dollars at least I'll be off the hook and uh, he uh, well he did in the end but Sullivan was saying tell him you were, tell him you were betting in lira <laughs> so that was my contact with the two gamblers of sorts okay David okay, this, well this they, is the final bit I mean this I want to say that all these stories and loads more are in your book that you've got in your hand there. Yes. A head full of Jolly Robins, subtitled, This Man Is No Class, which is a bit <laughs> self-depreciating. Well, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and it's written largely in memory of your late wife, like, late yeah. wife Marjorie, who suffered yeah. from motor neuron disease. Yeah, suffered sadly motor neuron. And I, I've bought this book and I'm just giving it to friends and families and people at the races who are interested uh, in, in return for a donation to motor neuron, uh, the motor neuron disease. And well, around about the 80s, when Frank O'Sullivan was on the scene, he sent a horse over to Cheltenham called King Ragapan. And uh, he uh, it ran in the novice hurdle. It was leading till two out. Um, and uh, then it, it it finished down the pack, but he left it over here with David Ellsworth, and then it let him down at Plumpton, and he he couldn't trust the thing, so he said, "Give me a grand for him." So I gave him a grand for it, and 
sent him to a Pat Taylor at Lambourne, an old friend of ours, a trainer who was very good with horses. And, uh, well, I better cut a long story short. It finished second, it finished fourth when it was favourite at Bangor. Um, and the track didn't suit it there. And then Ron Atkins, who was just starting training, offered me two grand for it. And quite frankly, I was spending more on the horse than I was on myself. So I accepted that. He managed, the, he and Dennis Mackay between them managed to lame the horse in, in a race at Kempton on firm ground where it shouldn't have run. So that was my one venture into owning racehorses. But uh, at that time, I was, I'd, Neil had got me into returning starting prices. In fact, this book should have been called Parallel Lines. My life at the, in the racing and the sporting field and my life at the academic field. But unfortunately, Blondie has an LP out called Parallel Lines, and they wouldn't let me have the title. So that's the origin of the title is a head full of Jolly Robins from my old grandmother during the wartime when she had to look after me. She could never find me because I was hiding and playing tricks. And she'd go out to the street and tell her friends, young lad there, He's got a head full of Jolly Robins. So with a publisher like that title. The other title there is, um, comes from a, an episode in Tampa where Marjorie and I were staying with Peter Anderson, who was playing for Tampa Bay Rowdies with Rodney Marsh and, at the time. And we'd gone off to training. I'd gone off with him to training. We dropped her off at the at the university library. The idea was we pick her up at 1.30 after training, we go and have lunch. Well, about 12.30, the heavens opened. There was a real tornado, well, hurricane. And we were all stuck on the motorways. We couldn't move. She was stuck at the library waiting for me and um, she knew what would what, what had happened, but it was two hours before we got to her, by which time she'd been walking around there and this chap had been chatting her up and idling her and so on. And eventually she, she said, Man, he, he said, Madam, can I assist you in any way? She says, no, she says, I'm waiting for my husband. And he just looked at her and shook his head and said, the man has no class. <laughs> So that's the origin, the, the other title that they might have used. Um, so I, I, I'd started then to write columns for the, um, the it, at the time it was the Sporting Chronicle Handicap book and Len Bell was the uh, editor. And uh, I'd been writing little bits about gambling when any little stories appeared I'd send them into the handicap book and he just said to me well next Tuesday he said if you've got you've got something um, ring me at two o'clock so I had a couple of stories one about Richard Hannon and every time he wore a check sh red check shirt he was having it off and Back in winners, that is. Back, well, yeah. training winners, yeah. actually. Training Richard Hannon Sr., this was. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and the other one was about Michael Stout being dragged round the parade ring at Kempton by a horse called Truly Brave, which was seven to four on favourite and didn't run. And then ta uh, Rule 4 came into operation and really was not suitable for the case because... Uh, the deductions were not enough for for it was probably about six to four on, and um, so I, I I put together two or three little articles, and he said, oh, at, at about three o'clock they'd taken this down, and he said, right, same time next Tuesday, and from then on I was writing a 
the column, Smallest People, for the uh, handicap book because... I remember I used to read it when I first got into racing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, you'd well, learn in 19 in 1984. Yeah, that was. That, that, well, it was about. I think it was about 86 when I started. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd put one or two bits and pieces in before, but um, so I, I, I'd started to write this column, and uh, uh, well, you know, it, it, it didn't. As, like yourself, there were several people. I tried to make them something about betting uh, 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 but also about people and occasionally I got my my bum bitten you might say <laughs> Alan of H&S at the track always used to put me right on one or two things Alan Marcel Alan Marcel yeah yeah, we're, yeah. now uh, there's a few there's a few things I want to bring up right everybody's heard about Gary Wiltshire doing his cobblers yes but you actually laid Fujiyama Crest as well. I, you, you laid. Oh, I laid F Fujiyama Crest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I was I was actually standing with John Reed, uh, John Reed's brother Noel. John was riding in the race, and I was, you know, and he'd ridden six, and we were all waiting for him, the jockeys to come out, and John came out, and he whispered to Noel on the way out, "He'll need a." A supercharger to win this, and and so I thought, well, yeah, he can't win this. And the horse was a fourteen to one chance in the morning, and by this time it's seven to two. And then it's coming down, money's coming in from everywhere, off the track, on the track. The bookies, like Gary Wiltshire, were taking money, but they didn't have enough to pay out. Well, I I was quite friendly with John Turner. And he was always cooperative when I was an SP man. He'd always uh, tell me the price for money. And um, so I said, I got the idea that, well, it can't win. I can lay something at five to two that should be 12 to one. So I laid him a 500 to two because he, he was, he said, I'll take it because I, I don't have enough to pay if it, you know, he said, I'll, I'll need the cash. Well, of course, it it came in. I wasn't carrying 500 with me at the time, but next day at Ascot, I duly handed over the 500 quid. And I was talking to Terry Ellis, who was Pat Hedery's driver and manager and brother-in-law. And he said, Pat was riding one of two for Henry Cecil and he, it was like five to two favourite and the other one was seven or eight to one and so I said well Terry what's you know what's the form he says I don't know he said I'm beginning to think we're on the wrong horse and he he backed the 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 favourite and uh, he says and then he said swore and then said he said we're on the wrong horse so the other horse was seven or eight to one so i had a five to seventy now with the fractions good man now with the with the fractions <laughs> i had a five to seventy the other one which duly won and got me back my 500 quid and taught me the one of the biggest lessons <laughs> that brings me nicely on to a, a very sad tale everybody thinks that bookmakers always win wayne heathcote they used to, he was too fearless a bookmaker, and he's an Australian. Oh, yes, of course. That was, um, what was he called? Um, Wayne Heathcote. Wayne Heathcote, yeah. Well, Wayne, yeah, he, he, he was a big African art dealer. He was quite wealthy. He's still around. He lives in Oxford, and he's still dealing. But he took on the bookmakers. With, with just a clerk and a, a, a runner. And um, he would take a, he, he, and he, he wasn't really betting by form, he was betting up by hunches. And um, he would take some, quite some big bets. And he was, I heard he was dealing a bit with Tabor at one time. And then suddenly, he wasn't appearing at the track 
and it turned out that he laid Tabor to lose a hundred grand. So the story goes, but I got it from Wayne Heathcote's stepbrother, um, who, who was actually a clerk for, for Ward Hill on the rails. And uh, he'd laid Monsieur to lose the ark, uh, for the ark, uh, to lose a hundred grand. And that knocked him out of the, uh, knocked him out of the ring really, and it never really appeared again. So that was, that, that story came via um, his brother, who is now a trainer in Brisbane. And Wayne and, and um, what's he called? I've been to the stable three or four times. Forget, I've forgotten his brother's name. Um, he, they, he, they, they went to Australia. They, they've been brought up in New Zealand and Australia. And uh, they, they'd come over here and one, uh, the brother had married a lass from Acton. They went back to Brisbane. And when I was in Brisbane, I went to the yard at uh, Eagle Farm, Doombum, a flea-bitten yard, and it was a horrible place, really. But he had a couple of good horses, and he'd, he'd supposed to set one up for Wayne, that was supposed to win and didn't. And so Wayne and he parted ways. He had to mortgage his house so that he could carry on training but six years later when I went round there, he was right back in the big time and he eventually won the big sprint at Alquaz uh, in, in, in with a horse that he'd been training as a miler and came out and won as a six furlong horse at Maidan. Now he's still training, he was top trainer in Queensland, but he did have a heart problem and I think he, he's a joint trainer the last count. I tried to see him, but I couldn't see him the last time I was there. But uh, he'd done very well, but from being a pencil man with Ward Hill, he's a good cricketer and we had finished up playing cricket with him down at Hampshire. Neil Wilkins had got a press team together. And he, 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 he was a, it was a nice story. He. He sort of gone gone rock bottom, but pulled himself up by his bootstraps. But yeah, there's uh, there's plenty plenty of really good stories in that book. Can you hold it up again, yeah, David? Yeah. So if anybody wants this one, can they collar well, you at the race course? They or? could collar me yes, as long as they know me, uh, and uh, yeah, and then we'll contribute to to motor neuron. I've got about I've got about forty copies left. I can't carry them all around with me, but um, I've usually got three or four in the back of the car. So if anybody's interested, um, then I'd, I'm only glad to, if they, as long as they know, um, they know me. Yeah. I haven't said much about Marjorie, but... Uh, you want to say something about Marjorie? Well, yes. In fact, she, she introduced me to racing in one sense, because I used to play cricket. And um, she hated cricket, but it was the only game I was really any good at. So to stop me when we were first married, going off at weekends and playing cricket, she bought me memberships to Ascot, Kempton and Windsor for Christmas. So that then I'd be more inclined to take her to the races uh, and those uh, um, at, at the time when the racing was on, and that's how it all started. And the only other thing, too, a, a, a nice story about William Buick that I've known since he was 10. Walter, his father, was a jockey here, as you may know, but he was, he was Van Cutsum and was middle of the road. So he went to Scandinavia and be, became leading jockey for 12, 13 years in Scandinavia. Married a, a Swedish lass who was a jockey. Brought up three three young boys. The eldest one used to come up when w Walter finished riding and training, for which he was not getting paid. 
He used to come over here and Jets found him a job with the Press Association. And he used to bring William with him to the races and a few of the old fuddy-duddies didn't like kids in the racing room. So I used to, when I wasn't working, I'd take over and we'd go around the racetrack and I'd learn more from William than I'd, I'd ever found out from anyone else. He perhaps learned a bit from me in the betting ring, not that he does, but <laughs> um, anyway, he, he, I, I've known him since he was 10 and when he was in, he used to go to Todd Pletcher's over the winter in America and ride out for Todd Pletcher and the, a former top jockey called Angel, uh, Angel Cordera. And this top jockey was, he wouldn't let William out of his sight. He wanted him over there as a bug apprentice, as, him as the agent, and he said, we will really make some money. But Walter insisted he came back here. I used to meet him over in, Calo in Florida at the races. He'd come down with Pletcher's horses and uh, taking copies of the racing, bundles of racing posts. And then when he came back here, we became quite friends. I don't ask for tips. We don't, um, don't communicate on, on betting. And when he met, he, he met my wife many times and he was, they, they got, they were very friendly. And um, when Marjorie was diagnosed with motor neuron, I, I was at Ascot one day and he was asking how she was. And I said, well, I'm afraid it's not good. He said, well, look, he said, any money you need for an operation, any money you need for treatment, he said, just let me know and I'll, you can have it from me. Which was, you know, and there's no cure for, there, there are supposedly cures in Mexico and but they never work and there were no cures, but he insisted that he would pay for the treatment if, if, if we could find any. So I thought that was a great gesture from a young lad who was maybe 23, 24, to make such a gesture. And um, yeah, he's been, he's, he, he, I know he's got a bit of a devil in him at times, but he's a great lad. He's a lovely lad. Champion jockey and he's a, it's, a, it's an honor for the sport. Brilliant, well, David, that's, you can tell it's making you emotional there. Well, it, a little bit because yeah, he's uh, he's got just got two boys of his own now. He's just had another baby. One of his lads is called David. Oh. Well, yeah. on that note, David, it's been a pleasure talking <laughs> to you. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Simon.